Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 118, CXV III, recorded October 26th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Not even going to explain that title. Those of you who get it, get it. Those who don't, it doesn't matter. Moving right along. Um, we don't have a particular topic tonight, just a bunch of news. As usual, Seth has um, overachieved in his task of, of news gathering. And, uh, you know, at least some of it was interesting. So that's, decided, that's the way we decided to go with the show. It's just all news all the time. Uh, and, of course, that Seth I'm referring to is the inevitable one. That's kind of a weird thing to say. Uh, Seth, the gooey kid Anderson. Hey, Seth. Hello, Mark. Sorry, I just had a random Matrix moment. Do you hear that sound, Mr. Anderson? <laughs> that is the sound of inevitability. Yes, I love it, Mr. Anderson. And, of course, alongside him, actually in the chat, in the, the Google Plus Hangout, he's alongside me because I'm in the middle for some reason. Mr. Chris! Command line Godfather Neves. Hey, Chris. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Uh, a little earlier this week again. Yes, once again, for the third week in a row, we're recording on Saturday night instead of Sunday night, just because stuff keeps happening. Uh, and I got to say, I'm I'm not liking it. Saturdays are rough for me Yeah, yeah uh, when you have kids, particularly when you have multiples of kids. Uh, Saturdays is the day when stuff be happening. Um and so I'm just, if I fall asleep in the show, just keep going, guys, because I am that tired today. <laughs> oh, I'm right with you. I'm in the same Alrighty. boat. Two kids and two kids and a flurry of birthday parties. Is I'm about done. Yes, it is birthday. It is folding season for sure. Um, <laughs> one thing I had interesting happen today is that it was the first sort of cold uh, day. Uh, here in northern Georgia, we uh, the overnight temperature is about thirty-one degrees. You know that that's cold wherever you are. Thirty-one degrees is cold. Uh, no, and so no, uh, it's not. Yeah, it's cold. I mean, you, nobody's comfortable at thirty-one degrees. Um, so it, I hadn't turned the heater on yet this summer. I have been enjoying the relatively uh, energy-free days that we've had lately. No air conditioner running, no heater running. Those are rare. Uh, in the south um, it's either so hot you need an air conditioner or so cold you need a heater and there's almost never any break in between so it was nice and i was reluctant so i finally decided today well i didn't decide my family decided they were packing up and leaving me if i didn't turn the heater on so um <laughs> I, I clicked on the heater and it came on and started blowing cold air and i thought ah the pilot lights uh -oh. coming out. so i went downstairs and um and it, the thing there was a little incredibly non-helpful set of instructions on how to light the pilot light. It, was, uh, it said, follow the uh, gas tube from the inlet valve to find the pilot light. Press the light button and hold, put the match up to the pilot light. Okay, what sh there's 97 metal tubes in here. Which one am I supposed to follow? And how am I going to know the pilot light when I see it? What, what is it? I mean, I, it's just going to be a hole somewhere. Well, there's like 100 holes. I'm not an idiot. I've lit pilot lights before. But I just couldn't find it, and I, and I, I had a uh, uh, lighter, uh, one of those long lighters, and I was just kind of randomly moving the thing around, hoping I might find the jet of gas, because I just, I couldn't, I, it's like, well, it should be kind of in this area. There's where the two inlet valves are. It looks like there's the, where it mixes with the, the room air, where there's got to be, and I just couldn't find it. So finally, 
I did what any good geek would do. I went to YouTube and typed in <laughs> lighting a pilot light on a rude model, whatever, whatever, whatever. First link came up. I looked at it and the guy uh, showed showed it. And I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. And I went downstairs three seconds later and it was done. So I really should have just gone to YouTube first. That was my mistake. The mistake was, was trusting myself um, in the first place when I really, you know, I've surrendered my higher brain functions to Google. Google. I should just trust in that and, and go with that. There you go. Right. I guess if that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. <laughs> my, my daughter, who just turned 11, anything she needs to do, it doesn't matter. YouTube is the first place she looks. If she wants, she was making hair bows the other day. We had her, her birthday party, and she wanted to make everybody hair bows to go in the, uh, the gift bag. And so first thing she did was grab my iPad, typed in how to make a hair bow, and, and a YouTube video came up. So that, that, that really is, I think, the, the way the next generation is going to do everything without thought. Yeah, well, it's one of those things you could be, yeah. you know, a lot of people spend hours and hours trying to figure something out on their own where you can take 10 seconds on a YouTube link and be like, oh, I understand how that works and just go do it. So if only there I was a YouTube-like service for learning how to how to do Linux administration. Hmm. Have to think about that. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's a new uh, wonderful thing we could be uh, talking about later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Chris, uh, pumpkins. You said you were going to be doing yep. lots of jack o' lanterns. Have you begun the work on those? No, we start those tomorrow at noon, and I have a feeling, because now it's not just my family and six pumpkins, it's now two other families <laughs> and their pumpkins as well. So we're doing the family group carving expedition, sort of, kind of. But uh, I think it's kind of funny, though, that everyone has their own places to go find stencils, or you know, if they want something more than just the standard jack-o'-lantern face. Um, the one I currently, and I am going to give a free shout out to this company because I absolutely love them and the fact that they donate to charities, zombiepumpkins.com. They're, they have a nice cheap price. They have about 400 stencils, I think is what it is. And every year they donate to a cancer society or something, some, you know, some sort of charity relating to cancer or, uh, I think a couple of years ago it was for battered and, and abandoned kids. So it's a really great site, even if it's just for the donations. Go take a look at zombiepumpkins.com. Tell them that Chris sent you. That's kind of cool. I'm looking through it. So their their uh, movie theater uh, movie character this year is Gandalf the Gray. Um, yep. So you can, you can look at that. There's also <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite. That's awesome. Hellboy is there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he does great work. So what's the cost on it? Do you pay? How does that work? So you um, well, it, in. yeah, it, it, there's a price range depending on how many you want to download. You can look at most of them, and they don't cost nothing to look. But if you want to actually download the stencil, they charge you based on how many stencils you want. Um, every year since I found this site, I've been buying the most expensive one because I like the idea that he donates to charity. And the fact that if my friends see one they want, they can just you know use my account and download it. Um, this year the charity is brain tumors. So I thought that was an even worthwhile thing. So I even bought, not only did I register uh, the full account again this year, but I also bought a bunch of, um, professional grade carving tools. And then part of the, part of the cost for the carving tools goes to donating to the charity as well. So I double donated this year. 
And it says, I didn't know this. Very nice. You can coat the edges you just cut with Vaseline, and that'll make it last longer. Yep. Oh, yeah. There's all sorts of cool things that they show you in there. Like uh, when you're done cutting and before you coat it with Vaseline, if you rinse it out in the, you know, rinse take it to the bathtub or if you got a big enough sink you can rinse it out in the bathtub or the sink and by hydrating it it'll last a little bit longer as well that's cool i've never been yeah big into that sort of stuff we always just uh, i had a a pumpkin carving competition when i was a kid i was i don't know eight or whatever at the public library and my i didn't like the way my pumpkin turned out so i put a sheet on it and called it a ghost and i got (laughs) I got the most creative award. There you go. That's pretty good. <laughs> I, I saw one a friend of mine posted on, on Facebook. I thought it was a brilliant idea. It was called the OMG pumpkin. And uh, it, she didn't carve it. She used like duct tape or stencils or something to put a face on it. And big eyes uh, shooting to the right and a big, oh, no, mouth. And to the right of the pumpkin was a pie crust and pumpkin spice and evaporated milk uh, all sitting beside <laughs> it. <laughs> nice. That was like a that's that's creative. Yeah, that was a nine year old. I think who came up with that. I thought Man, that's smarter than anything I've ever done in my life. That's brilliant. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's. It reminds me of uh, I. There's a couple of different times I've seen the, uh, a JPEG, a picture come up on Google Plus with a uh, a six pack of eggs, and they're all got you know horror faces drawn on them like they're in shock, and then. Further down the picture, they have a frying pan with one of the eggs broken open and fried. Nice, nice. And I saw I've printed it out every time I've seen it and hung it up, and it always ends up being taken down by somebody either here at the house or at work or whatever. But it's one of those absolutely hilarious things when you first look at it and go, "Wait a minute, those are eggs." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and Seth, you it's your fault. That we're recording on Saturday night instead of Sunday. What's going on, dude? Yeah, um, if those of our listeners who have ever heard of SpiceWorks, it's like a network monitoring software that it's not technically open source, but it is free. Um, and so if you're a professional in the IT field, you should look at SpiceWorks. They're pretty cool. But they are having their big spice gathering in Austin and the Dallas get together right before that is the path a lot of people take and so it's a big deal and i'm not heavy into spice works but i really like the community um i get a lot of my uh, technical questions answered on the community and i try to give back in it and so they're having a big meeting tomorrow from six to ten at a vendor and so you know i think it's like barbecue and swag and stuff like that so i really wanted to go and I asked the guys and they were nice enough to bump the bump our recording up so that I can make it there. That's awesome. If if I'd have been able to go down there, I would have. Um I use Spiceworks heavily at my current job and I love the thing. Um I wish it would be uh, the help desk would be a little more uh utilized in my field or in my particular job, but otherwise I love it. It's been helping me track down naughty installs and things that over like i've been over licensed for too long and now i'm starting to f- track them all down and get them cleaned up so it's always a nice thing to know spice works for the way cool go Sp- go spice rex yeah, we we talked about that fairly extensively we even had a couple of guys from the company on our tightwad tech show a couple of years ago i think it was 
And my experience with Spiceworks is it's really good for a mid-sized deployment. But when you start getting over three to 400 network devices, it just crumbles. Can't handle it. Um, and that was my... I found a way around it. Okay. What I ended up doing is because I got a, a you know fairly large district and I scan, you know, f- I don't remember the last count, but there's four buildings of computers that I'm scanning through. What I found that helps is you break it up. Um, like, I don't know if it would work in a, if it was a single building, but in my instance, I broke it up into building-specific servers, and then they upload, they, they remote it into another server that then can do the databasing. Yeah, and the that fe- seems federating to help servers immensely. That, yeah, the Spiceworks guys recommended that, too. They, they say not more than, I think, 200 on a single device, um, and then you can federate the servers. Uh, in my situation, we were one transparent LAN. I mean, it was over several buildings, but it, for all intents and purposes, it was one LAN, and it just wasn't able yeah. to do that. Yeah. See, we have the same thing. We have a transparent f- LAN through fibers um, through our the local ISP, and it, it does great. It, it was doing okay, but when I was starting to try to pull big reports, yeah, it, it fell on its head. But the second I broke it up into the building-specific servers, and then the one server does all the the collection it was a much better or a much much better um thing to use we got to the point where we'd be trying to enter an asset tag on an inventory entry and it would be 75 seconds between the time you clicked something and the data would load Uh, it was wow absolutely ridiculous it was it became unusable so anyway huh not bashing spice i wonder if it just didn't work for me i wonder if that yeah i wonder if it was a did you give it its own dedicated machine, or did you VM it? I tried it both ways. I even put it on a. They say all you need is like a you know an XP machine. I put it on a, a full on multi core uh, rack mounted server, huh. and it still didn't help. Wow. I wonder if they're going to change some of their databasing yeah, I, thing. I know they changed their scanner. They moved from a, a Windows driven type scanner or a base Windows tools scanner to Nmap. I wonder if they're slowly going to be migrating to bigger tools as they get bigger. You were going to say something, Seth? No, I was just going to say I know they've gone through several major versions, and I'm just I'm just wondering. Like, I wonder if Sean still uses it there, and if he's um, if it's made any difference um, in terms of its usability. I'm just curious more than anything. Yeah, the, the my my thinking was they that that version I don't know if they still do was using SQLite as the database and it just I just think it wasn't robust enough to handle that much information on demand like that. But anyway, don't use my experience. It's it's a it's at least two years old, maybe three now. Uh, so I'm sure it's got to be a lot better by now. But hey, mention that when you go to the SpiceWorks thingamahooger tomorrow. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. And say, I've got a podcast with fives of listeners who need to know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, would it be worth trying to get someone on? Because they're not really, they don't have a lot of Linux support. They're like working on a Linux client, um, you know, to get to report some of the Linux machines. But there's not like, it's not on a big deal for it to be on a Linux server, but what do you think about maybe having the Spiceworks people on? Because I'm sure they would love to come talk about their stuff. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I mean, we don't talk about Linux on this show anyway. So, sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Um, yeah, we've kind of graduated to a tech show. Yes. <laughs> or been demoted, depending on how you look at it. Uh, so yeah. speaking of the scary time of year, back up your data again. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I just had a whole bunch of issues this morning as of the day of recording, um, where I was getting errors messages in my QuickBooks files and large error logs being generated from disk access. And when I went to look for it to see if it was a bad sectors or whatever, it was just, um, meaningless error messaging. And so I kind of had a spooky, scary moment. So I started backing up all my stuff. So as a reminder, Make sure you have backups because you never know when something's going to go wrong. And that's why your backup has to be automatic and consistent, like Crash Plan or yep. or um, a Carbonite or any of the number of services we've talked about before that just does it every night for you automatically. If you if you have a routine of every the first of the month, I back up. Well, if you crash on the thirty first of the month, you're going to regret that plan. Yep. Right. Back up, back up, back up. Definitely. And Never test hurts. your backups, too, because it oh, yes. doesn't matter if your backup runs if you can't access that data. So, so Seth, I, I'm going to confess, because of my crazy busy Saturday, I have not even looked at one of the notes you've put in here. Do you have a new story about that uh, um, uh, ransomware new thing that's just coming up? Yes, I see it there. Okay. Yes. Because... Depending on how you're backing up, that thing will even screw your backups. Yep, I was just going to make that comment. So we'll talk about that a little later on. Oh, okay, Chris, you got nine things here in the show uh, notes. I'm going to give you one. Pick one. What's the next thing you oh. talk about? Um, I only got two more. Uh, but let's <laughs> right, go fine. with. Do uh, both of them. <laughs> um, I don't care. We can just do the one. I found a weird glitch today, or it was just this week. Um, did you guys know that XP has a, a viewing limit of terabyte hard drives? I did know that. I did not yes. until I went to find out. Well, at least as long as if you leave it in the... If you wanted to have the MBR type system, you're limited to only two terabytes. I did not know that. Yeah, so that's not so, an XP limitation. That's a file system limitation. Um, yep, that's a file system limitation. Yeah, it's only a 32-bit so, file system. Yep. So these guys that are three terabytes, you only get to see two. Yeah. So that that was kind of a shocker moment. So if if you guys are looking at buying those big drives, but you need to have retro action where you can up see them from different dri- devices, make sure you buy sizes that are appropriate, and you don't have a limitation uh, no, of what re- file system. I don't remember, but can't you format it has like a two terabyte and a one terabyte and see both? Yes. No. No. Yeah, you no, can, you can't. You can do two partitions. I tried and it won't let me do the second partition. It only lets me do the one partition. I might I'm gonna try a little bit later on to do two logical partitions and see if that changes the tune. Are you doing a fat I know, file format? Is that why? No, they're they're in TFS. But when I tried to format the second partition with the uh, MBR as the the file manager, or the I just bl- blanked out what that's what the MBR is. But anyway, um, when I tried to, when I looked to to format that second the one part the one terabyte partition, it won't access it at all, no matter what machine I stick it in. 
So I'm wondering if it's not a complete limitation of the file system to only allow you to do two, two, to do two terabytes. Um, but I'm going to try a logic partition next to see if that allows me to see both partitions. Of course, I can hear the geeks out there now saying, okay, what you do for this situation is you mount it on a Linux box and then share it with a Samba share. And then the Samba will let you handle more than three terabytes and it won't be a problem. Right. <laughs> but if you're, if you're giving it to somebody who is a Linux or, oh, let's just go this way, who is a Windows newbie and doesn't want to touch anything, has panic moments every time something changes, you want to make it simple in Samba. It's not simple. Yeah, just stop using XP. End of story. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that would be a now, nice I, thing. Won't you run into that? Won't you run into that with the 32-bit version of Windows 7 as well? Uh, I I honestly don't know. I'm just curious. I, I don't think so because you're using the GPT tar- file system. Then the the well, I think it's GPT or GBA or GBT or something. I don't remember what the the breakdown or what the acronym is, but it's the um, yeah, allocation GPT table that is yeah table, yeah, which is allows you to see a bigger drive, and you can because NTFS doesn't have a limitation of that. It's it's the uh, partition table, right? And then some BIOSes even it may not have been yeah. XP. Now that I think about it, it could be the BIOS on the machine you were using. Some BIOSes have a limitation for that, and you've got to use the what is it, OHCI something like that to to see a larger drive. Yep. So, yeah, I got bit by that a long time ago with a uh, an old old XP box with uh, a limitation on the IDE. It was a Dell motherboard, and I ended up having to use a RAID card to be able to see the full. I think it was a 250 gigabyte hard drive. There was a limitation on the BIOS that could only see a hundred. It wasn't even 120 gigabytes, but it was it was ridiculous. So we bought a 15 dollar RAID card and stuck it in and. She was able to get to the whole drive then. Blew my mind when I saw that. I and I even asked the Dell rep. I, I was on the phone with one of the Dell rep, you know, support reps, and going, "Is there a limitation on the BIOS?" And they were telling me, "No, no, no." And then I noticed it was, I think, a month later. There was a Dell release notification saying for her machine saying that there's a, a limitation of hard drive. You can only have blah blah blah. So it's like, oh. Huh, I wonder if I struck a chord with somebody. So, oh, yeah, about that thing? Yeah. <laughs> Turns out there yeah. is. Yeah, you, you know, we were adamant and called you stupid because you didn't know and we did. It turns out we were yeah. mistaken. Sorry. Go figure. Okay, so let's jump into the little bit of uh, listener feedback we have this week. Uh, we only had uh, one so far about my last week's Coffee Talk episode. Um which surprised me. I, I thought I expected that one to bring down a firestorm of why did you waste my time with a two-hour show about your stupid coffee? That's what I expected to get, but I haven't yet. So maybe maybe it's just too early. It's they looked at it and went two hours. I'll listen to that later. They haven't listened to it yet. <laughs> maybe yeah, or you know they haven't transcribed it to plain text yet to <laughs> yes, read it. Yes. It worked. That takes a while. So, uh, by the way, I did post some pictures with that episode um, of just a couple of shots of how I made my homemade stuff. So, uh, you can go back to check that out, elementop.com. It's it's the most recent posting right now. Uh, So, Fuzzy, 
has some coffee talk of his own. He says, I've been thinking about your coffee experiment as I listened to the cast at work. And when I got home, I did the unthinkable and Googled cold brew coffee. As it turns out, there's lots of methods for making the stuff, and nowhere did I find mention of using pressure, positive or negative, to extract the brew. There's the pricey but pretty Yama and Hario glass towers, gravity, the cheap but large toddy machine, also gravity, and the mix it all in a chapped bucket and a huge brew bag system, much like brewing beer, um, and even a bleach blonde with Walmart pitcher and a strainer. Uh, my questions uh, then are, one, what advantage does a pressurized system have over existing technology? And two, would it be easier and quieter to make a positive pressure system? On my second point, I devise a method in my mind. A 4-inch PVC pipe, 12 inches long, will hold 2-quart, actually a good bit more than that, because um, I did the same math myself. Uh, a piece of felt, uh, as such as used in the toddy device, is placed on one end over a perforated end cap. Uh, one hole, a quarter inch, may be threaded a, a nipple to direct the flow better. The other end has a threaded cap and a gasketed Schrader valve. Oh, Wow, Schrader valves. I'm getting the chills. Uh, after the mixture is poured into the top, the cap is uh, poised uh, uh, and the pressure can, uh, in the can brought to 30 PSI with a bike pump or compressor. This can sit for as long as necessary to evacuate the liquid inside without any noise whatsoever. By the time the liquid escapes, the pressure uh, will be at 10 PSI or less and can safely escape through the bottom hole without splattering. What do you think? Fuzzy, I think you spent way more time thinking about this than I did. Uh, but I will tell you, gravity doesn't work. Not, not as effectively. Sure, you can get the water out using gravity. You won't get the oil out. Um, that I, I've looked at all those toddy things. I've tried uh, a number of it myself. One, you know, one of the first earliest methods I did was I put it in like a kitchen strainer with a brick on top. And what happened was I got super nasty, disgusting stuff. The pressure... Um, was too harsh and squeezed out all the stuff I didn't want, all the tannins and the bitters and the, the acids and just ick. Uh, so the issue is not that um, vacu uh, pressure is necessary uh, to get the water out, but the pressure is necessary to get the stuff other than water out. Whether it's positive pressure or negative pressure, I, you know, I, I suppose you could push on the top and push the water out, uh, the oil out. I don't see a problem with that. I just, I use what I had available. Shop vac was cheap and, and easy. Um, yes, it is loud, uh, but that's, that's what I got. So if you, if you decide to build that rig and test it, I'd love to know, um, how it works out for you. Um, it, I would be interested to see how you could scale that up. Vacuum pressure would be easy to scale up for, you know, hundreds of gallons. Uh, but positive pressure might be a little more complicated. Um, Anyway, it's it's a it's an interesting idea, uh, to to say the least. But the gravity definitely isn't going to cut it. Yeah. Hey, Mark, is uh, is the shop vac louder than an espresso machine? Because I mean, I'm not really an espresso nor coffee drinker, so I know. But my understanding is that espresso machines really aren't quiet. Uh, well, you're not going to run an espresso machine for an hour and a half at a time, so that's a that's an invalid comparison. Well, okay, that's that's true. Uh, I would say that, you know, I do it uh, when the temperature is such, because heat is the enemy, right? So, and it gets hot in Atlanta in the summer. So, in the fall and winter, uh, I can do it in the garage, 
and you know, with it in the garage and a closed door between us, it sounds you know like a hair dryer in the other room. It's it's not a problem. Uh, in the summer when it's hmm. really hot, we have a downstairs bathroom, so I just do it in the bathroom, and again through a closed door, um, it's not terrible. You know, I it's, it would be better if I moved it all down to the basement or something, but I don't have a, a sink in the basement. That's the reason I haven't done it here. So yeah, the 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 family complains that it's a little loud when I'm running the vacuum. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the, the nice thing is it smells awesome because all that coffee <laughs> is being pushed out the ex, uh, the, the aroma is being pushed out the exit port on the, the, uh, vac. So when you open the door to that little bathroom downstairs, it just smells amazing. Huh? Interesting. Uh, I might have to give it a whirl one of these years. Yeah. I've just, I just made a batch, um, earlier in the week uh, and I thought you know, I, I need to figure out how to get some to you and Seth to just send you an ounce of it um, some way that would it would arrive safely and, and inexpensively just so that you can taste it just you know pour it in some water of your own and, and see what you think well I've actually after that episode I've been looking at ordering some just to yeah. you know for, to even just to take it in, as an experiment because I do that if Anytime I find something that is, well, that'd be kind of cool. Can I get it for, you know, a single shot, a single serving or, and not break my bank for experimental costing? Um, I just have to find a way to, to get it past the boss, <laughs> so to speak. Just offer to share. Well, you know, you, you can look at it as like a service you're going to offer to clients and that way you can write off all the cost There's of research. Idea. You know, you know, like coffee and computer support or something like that. <laughs> well, no, j- j- just when uh, my clients come over, you know, I can offer them a cup of coffee. And the fact that I offer a cup of right. coffee, I have to have it on hand. So, so what is, I'm looking here, uh, the, the black blood of the earth, right? This is, this is what started the whole thing. Um, uh, uh, and I'm trying to see, he, I know he has some, um, single serving the samplers. Yep. Um, I think you can buy just like one one ounce of it. Maybe not. Maybe it's several one ounces. I'm just not remembering. Yeah, it's right six pack. Yeah. Okay. So a sample a pack, pack for fifty bucks, you get six test tubes. I, I I love that he serves it and sells it in test tubes. That's just funny. Yeah. It's all about <laughs> the science. But still, fifty bucks is not cheap. No, it's not. It's a little outside no. of my experimental range, but yeah. I may be able to. Get to squeak, to squeak it through, maybe as a, a present. If I write it up as a present for the boss, I could probably get it away. <laughs> I got this for you. Or but... you could have somebody pay you in that. You know, just say, hey, what you're going to have to, I'll do your work for you, but I don't want the money. I want you to send off and get this for me. And so that way <laughs> it would be a barter system. And you're, you know, the boss would say, okay, it was barter. I'll, I'll accept that. Or you know, you maybe try to just help. fly down to Atlanta. That would only be five or six hundred. So you could do that. <laughs> I'd probably have to go to Texas first. Otherwise, a couple buddies of mine would probably find me and beat me. <laughs> okay, moving right along with listener email. Uh, Mike likes bacon, um, and the show the the thing he's talked about is over. But it was such a uh, an interesting thing. I decided to go ahead and put it in there. It says, uh, maybe a little late, but I wondered if you guys have seen the Humble Bundle weekly sale. There are only 20 towers left, but any package that comes with a game called The Baconing in it has got to be worth a punt. <laughs> with a story involving evil thongs, 
I'm quite looking forward to it. Only 22 hours left, though, so be quick. So, but those 22 hours are long gone, but you can still pick it up, I'm sure, just not on sale. So, The Baconing, a game that involves evil thongs. Nice. Very interesting. Yeah. I don't, I don't, my, I, my brain can't even process those two things in a way yeah. that is not weird. Um, but, you know, it's worth checking out. The Baconing. What a great name. Yeah. But I will definitely say if anyone is looking for um, a place to buy games, that is definitely one place to go looking for. Uh, they, they currently have another Humble Bundle. Um, by the time it goes out, we're not going to be able to have anybody buy it from a, for at the time. But they got, they release a weekly sale every week, and then they do the huge Humble Bundles with a bunch of games every so often. And, yeah, it's kind of... Kind of a nice little, nice little site to go look at when you, when you're looking to see uh, what games are available and for how much. And we are still the Linux people are still paying more than everyone else. Uh, currently, at the time of recording, the Humble Bundle Seven, the Linux people are paying approximately eight dollars and sixty cents. Mac is seven dollars, and Windows is a measly five dollars and ninety one cents. So go Linux. <laughs> Just goes to show if you, if you make it, Linux people will pay for it. Sometimes, um, more than likely, if you make it good. Yeah, if you make it good. If it, if you make it about bacon, you know they're gonna. Pay. <laughs> Pretty much. Okay, and Jeff asks a question about PF Sense. Says, hey guys, love the show. It's brought me many hours of enjoyment while driving around the Northeast doing my job as a medical imaging service engineer. Anyway, great show. Uh, here is my question. I remember a show about PFSense, and Chris, I believe, mentioned that if anyone uh, wanted some insight into setting up a squid proxy, he'd be available. I, available. I'm that one. Just build my first PFSense box to replace that plastic box router. If Chris could contact me, that would be great. Uh, or point me in a, with a good guide, that would be great. Thanks, and keep the show going. Of course, I sent this to Chris already, but he said, hey, let's talk about this on the show because maybe more than Jeff is interested in it. Yeah, you know, and honestly, Jeff, or anyone who else is looking to set up a squid proxy, it depends on what you're doing for the squid proxy. If all you're doing is looking to cache stuff locally, there really isn't much to set up. You install the squid the the squid uh, package. You go to the uh, PFSense website. They have a step. You know, put this value in here. Put that value in here. Set turn this on, and you're done. Um, it, it's the PFSense guys have done a really good job making the manual for how to set up a squid proxy. Now, if you're looking at filtering, you know, you want to keep your little Johnny from seeing things that he shouldn't be seeing on the internet, you know, then you're going to have a little bit more things to configure, you know, either using the Squid Guard package or the uh, Dan's Guardian package, both of which you could run together. But remember, you have two content filters running then, and you might end up with more than one trying to block a page. Um but yeah, there there really isn't much to setting up a squid proxy. Um, the only thing I would recommend is make sure you install the newer squid. The I think it's squid three. Um, I'll quickly jump over to my squid box to make sure. But the differences between squid two and squid three, yeah, squid three is the newest one. Uh, it, it squid three allows you to cache like YouTube videos 
in Windows updates. It's built into the system. Um, there's almost little configuration at that point. Uh, but it's, it's not terribly complicated. If you want the numbers that I use, uh, send us an, you know, or if anyone has, wants a whole deep dive into PF sense, you know, let us know so we can, you know, we, we are here to serve. And if you want more information, let us know because I'm sure we could even probably try to get one of the PF sense got community guys in here too. It's, yeah, if it's not sexy. <laughs> Caching is not sexy. What I want to know, and and I haven't spent a lot of time looking for this. I'm sure I can find the answer on the interwebs. Is why is it called squid? Uh, why not octopus or platypus or why squid? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's uh, a good question. Caching is isn't sexy, but it can sure um, beef up the performance of a of a of a low power connection. The reason being, most people search the same thing over and over. For example, the front page of Google.com. You know, as simple mm-hmm. as that is, um, just caching that so that you don't have to go out to the internet anymore um, can 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 save you tons of bandwidth if you've got lots of users. But even a regular household, you know, how many times does your wife, your and your daughter, and your son all go to Facebook? You know, at the same time. Well, let's stop going yeah. to Facebook every time. Let's cache that locally so it, it happens on the local land and never goes out over the Internet. Uh, but also, since you're caching everything, since everything comes into the local machine first, it's a natural place to filter. You're looking yep. at it before you're giving it to the end user, so let's set up some rules to say, is this okay to go to the end user? So that yep. it's, it was just something, it was one of those matches made in heaven. And the other thing that's really nice about having a caching proxy set up, especially for something as heavy or that can be as heavy as Windows updates or even your antivirus definitions, if you're only getting one call out of, you know, however many machines you have in your house to, you know, get a Windows update, you're saving bandwidth. So a lot of places, a lot of internet providers are going to a metered system where you can only go, if you go over your 300 gigabytes or 500 gigabytes, you get nailed. Well, by setting up a PFSense right. box with caching, even just for the Windows updates, you'll save a good gigabyte or two per machine. Yep. Especially if you're someone who works on Windows machines and you know you you had to rebuild a box and you've got your original, especially with XP now, you've got your XP Service Pack 2 disk. Well, my gosh, you're going to spend, like me, it's two days uh, for letting all the updates run whenever I build an XP box from scratch or I have to rebuild one. So if, if I, if I were to set up PFSense, then that's going to really cut down my time on doing it because, you know, and especially, um, like Ninite. Of course, I know, you know, yep. there's not really, well, and then Ninite is for Linux now too. You can get it on some Linux clients, but, you know, if I'm always putting, uh, LibreOffice and Firefox and Foxit and, um, you know, Malwarebytes and others, and that's all already cached, then I'm downloading that and I'm saving myself tons of bandwidth and speed because, you know, sometimes my, uh, sometimes my bandwidth ain't quite up to it. Uh, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's always shocking the first time you, you test. Because I always test my my squid proxy when I first set them up. No matter where I set up a squid proxy, I always check it. You know, download the same service pack twice or something like that, just just to make sure it's working. 
And that first download is obviously the worst because it's got to take the most time to get it. But then after that, and you run the same thing again, say an hour later, and that thing goes from zero to complete in about half a second, and you go, wow, that was a gig of data in no time flat. That's kind of nice. Of course, where proxying does get in the way is if you happen to be, say, uh, troubleshooting a server problem or if you're a webmaster. Because just last week I ran into that issue. I was was doing something on the Element OP server, and I kept refreshing the page and, and nothing was happening. It's like, I just made this change. What's the issue? It turned out it was I was pulling from the proxy and not uh, pulling from the thing. And so, you know, on a, on like a, a Firefox, you can shift reload and that uh, will make it go out and go get it, but you can't send the signal to your, your uh, local proxy. So I ended up having to go clear the cache on the local proxy just to see if that little change in the code worked. So it can get hmm. you. Uh, but overall, it's it's a good thing to do. You should be. Right. Uh, I don't know what version of proxy you're running, but I thought I thought I saw a spot in at least in my PF Sense box where I can say this person always gets cash. You know, they they always touch the cash first, and then there's or you could have them, you know, always bypassing the cash. So I mean, that would be. Well, I, I remember seeing it. Yeah, you can that does exist, but because mine is a Dan's Guardian installation, doing that would also oh. block the filtering on that machine. And I'm not the only one who ever uses this machine, so I don't I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, but you could do it as a temporary. How long does it take to, you know, put it back up, un- undo it after you've done it? So about but then you have to remember. Cash. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Enough about that rabbit that we chased and is now panting and dying. <laughs> Um, uh, we had some feedback recently, uh, from somebody saying, how can I contribute to open source when I'm not a programmer? Seth has an excellent link for you from opensource.com. Yeah. You know, they obviously, someone from there listens to our show and they were like, Hey guys, this would be a great topic. So, uh, Duncan McKean got on there and he just, you know, we, it's a lot of the same stuff we did, but, um, this is just something you can point out and send someone a link. Um, if they don't like bacon talk and coffee talk, you can send them open source.com article, but, uh, you can use the product. You can bug test. You can write documentation, translate, evangelize, donate and be professional about it. So, you know, and again, pretty much everything we covered as well. So, you know, they obviously, listen to us and rip us off. So Element OP is leading the way, people. Uh, there you go. I just wanted to share that. <laughs> it's funny. I was listening to uh, uh, another podcast. I'm not going to say which one it is, but for about three weeks in a row there, what we talked about um, in terms of a news thing, they also talked about. And it, it, um, the, the My first instinct was, hey, they're copying us. And I realized their show comes out a day before ours does. So that's not it. Um, oh. <laughs> we just we just happen to troll the same websites. Great minds, Pretty great much. minds think alike. Yes. All right, and so now since uh, we teased it a little earlier, and this is a good place to it, let's talk about how you can learn about Linux using a YouTube-like interface. So here's the problem with just going to YouTube to learn stuff. For example, my my uh, experience this morning with the how to light a um, uh, furnace, I had to be sure that I listed which type of furnace because there were something like 700 quadrillion videos on how to light a furnace 
um, all the way down from like a giant incinerator furnace to some coal burning <laughs> monstrosity. They were everything. Sometimes too much is a bad thing. Um, and that's what I love about the Linux Academy. They specify, uh, they specialized in what they do. They do one thing and they do it very well. They take people who don't know nothing about Linux and make them Linux experts. That's what they do. And that's a pretty good thing to do. Um, and they do that in a, uh, by way of, of offering over 200 training videos, uh, complete with uh, PDF study guides, complete with uh, quizzes, uh, complete with a course uh, tracker, a, br- a lesson browser that tracks what you've taken and what you haven't taken, and, and also uh, correlates your scores with that. All of that stuff there where you can, you can take a course. You can say, I'm going to take this um, Server Administration 101 course, which is a collection of videos and 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 I can go there or I can say well I just I'm really only interested in this one thing I want to look at that PF sense I want to look at that one thing I don't know if they have one but just as an example uh, and you can go look for that or you can say I want to take more than just one course I want all the courses to come together into a module and they have modules for for example right now they have a um, um, an introduction to Linux module which takes you not just server-side stuff, but also includes desktop courses and history courses. So you've got um, where it's not necessarily click here and do this, but uh, you get the history and the understanding of the basics of Linux and all this in this one module. So you click that button, say, I want this module, and the guys at Linux Academy figure out what you need to take and the order in which you need to take it. And uh, that would be a good place to start if you're if you're just not sure about this, if you're just not sure that uh, that you even know enough Linux to to be useful there. That's a good place to start. And for only a dollar, you can get a 14-day free trial. So log in there and maybe maybe start with that um, LPIC level one uh, Linux pro- uh, professional in- industry certification. I forgot what that stands for, uh, but it's something like that. Um, or, or start with that introduction to Linux and check it out and see what you like. Or if you want, just jump around, uh, and try all sorts of stuff. You got 14 days. It only costs you a dollar. And then once you're happy with it, that's when they really lower the boom on you. It's like the, the dollar introduction was, was just to get you. And then they really, they sock it to you by charging you $19 for a whole month. Are you kidding me? $19 for a month of this stuff? It's, it's nothing. Well, what if I wanted to buy, say, three months in a row? No problem. That's only $38. You buy two, you get one free. So you can uh, subscribe for a quarter for only $38. So uh, four quarters, that's a year, by the way. For uh, just over $150, uh, you can have tons of... of um, not just the videos, not just the downloadable study guides, but you get these real-world professional instructors hanging out in the forums and answering your real questions. You get the community involvement. Seth mentioned the SpiceWorks community earlier. There is a, a Linux Academy community that is that is active and vibrant, and it is all people just like you all wanting to learn, and they're learning from the instructors, and they're also learning from each other. And you get all that for you know $19 a month, $38 a quarter, $150 a year. Seth, how much are you going to pay? What are you going to get for $150 anywhere else on the web in terms of Linux learning? Um, well, I'm looking at that right now, and $150 would be roughly. Let me see. That would be ten. Would be roughly seven percent of one Linux course elsewhere. Um, so they're running. 
individual courses are running over $2,000. I'm Googling it right now. Um, Linux system administration. This is from a, a paid search result. Linux, a comprehensive hands-on introduction, $2,810 for not, not the whole, that's one Linux course. Um, and this other one, they want you, um, to give, oh, $2,500 for online Linux training. So, so it's a pretty simple choice. $2,500 for one course or $19 a month for hundreds of potential courses. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's just a no brainer. And when you go there, uh, and when they say, Hey, how did you hear about us? Use the code everyday Linux in the sign up box and let them know that, that we sent you. You were going to say something. Yeah. Crazy? It'll be well worth your while. Indeed. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, in a lot of stuff they talk about, if you're really wanting to learn the command line, they do bring up a lot of the command line stuff on how to do things correctly. Um, there, there's no hidden tricks. There's no, Oopsie, you mistyped that, so this is going to break your system. These are the correct steps for doing anything with a Linux administration, be it on your home machine or on a server. So it's it's a mute point. You just need to go do it. Um, you'll you'll thank yourself when you now realize that you know what sudo means and why it means what it does. So sudo, go to Linux what? Academy. <laughs> Yeah, and the great thing, another great thing about it is if you didn't understand it, you don't have to feel like a dunce and say, um, can you stop and go back and repeat that? You can just rewatch the video and it's not like you have to make notes of where this one long two hour video is. It's broken. It's not one video. It's a bunch of short videos. So if you don't learn something, stop it, rewatch it. It only takes a couple of minutes and, uh, you know, if you're like me, the first time you see it, you don't really get it. But, you know, by the second or third time, you really start to understand it. So you can repeat as necessary at your own pace. And that is something that that is a big value add because, you know, everybody else isn't saying, hey, this cost me a lot of money. Shut up. Um, you know, you're going at your own pace and you can interact and go one on one with other people in the community or the professors. Um and get the help you need at the pace you need um, without dragging everyone else down so you're not embarrassed, you don't ask questions because you don't want to look stupid. It's a win-win situation for everybody. This is a great way. Uh, this is a great learning model, I think. All right. So like I said, it's it's like YouTube, but better. And, uh, and it's cheap. All right, so moving on to the tech news, the uh, body of the show for this week. Door-to-door uh, -door -door geek, wherever you are right now, your heart is breaking and uh, your soul is dying because your favorite Linux distro is going away. And I'm laughing. Yes. <laughs> well, I wanted to bring this up. Uh, Solus OS is closing its doors, and I just wanted to talk about it because... You know, one of the great things about Linux is if you don't like what everybody else is doing, you can start your own. Uh, one of the bad things about Linux is if you, one you like, somebody gets a new job or they don't have time to do it because, you know, it could be just they're moving on to other projects or if, if it's a one person shop and that one person dies and all of a sudden the development ends. So it's kind of a call that it works better when you are involved in some way, but you know, there's lots of distros out there. Uh, Gabrielle, uh, in, um, Salento OS 
it's a one man shop and I like it. I hope other people, other programmers get involved and it really continues to, uh, it go and polish because I mean, am I using it? I love it. It works. It's fast. It's everything I need an OS to be, but he's only one developer and one programmer. So be aware whenever you're not going with like, um, Ubuntu or Debian or Fedora or some big boy in a Linux shop with a large number of developers, this can happen. So Solus OS closing its doors. Um, he posted on October the 24th. It is with a heavy heart that I must announce the closure of Solus OS. And he goes, he says, basically there's not enough manpower to fulfill the vision. And, I just wanted to mention that because we've talked about Solus on the show some before and it had, it was very positively received in the community. Um, at least from the stuff I read. Um, and it's closing its doors. And so it's a, it's a common open source story. It's a one man project that had a few people helping him out, but he was still one guy shouldering the burden and that one guy's life changed and it went away. Um, that is both the power and the uh, peril of open source. Yep. Not uh, much to say other than that. I mean, I do like what it was based off of. It'd be nice to see if someone can take the code and run with it, because that is the other benefit of open source, is be a, the ability for um, if anybody decides that, hey, I really love this and I know enough about coding to keep it up, they could. Yep. And then while we're on the subject of open source, Oracle apparently hates open source. At least Again. this week. Yeah, um, and this is actually one of the stories we didn't cover from last week. Um, but they did a thing. Um, of course, you know, Oracle, they acquired Sun Microsystems, and Sun was big in the open source, you know, uh, Star Office, Java, uh, a lot of other things, MySQL. And um, Oracle seemed like... Somebody told Oracle these would be the 10 things to do in order to make the open source world hate you with a passion reserved for hell. Uh, and Oracle said, that's a great marketing strategy. We're for it. And they set out to do every one of those in order, um, su- surpassing each one with their brilliance that can only be Oracle. But anyway, they did, they kind of released a port, a report, um, the company uh basically saying that open source is um full of holes and um i sorry i just can't remember the word but i want to read this one quote from the article government sponsored government sponsored community development approaches to software creation lack the financial incentives of commercial companies to produce low defect well documented code and are not subject to the same market pressure at the software code level. That's kind of, and the white paper that they did. And of course, it's all about getting the government to buy Oracle software rather than using free open source software. And the thing that I found was pretty funny was the same week they released that, they also released 51 patches. Uh, they released patches to plug 51 Java vulnerabilities. Java, which is a closed source thing, um, they try to make some money off of is one of the most insecure things on the internet right now. And Adobe loves them because people are forgetting about Adobe because <laughs> there's so many holes in Java. Um, now just so, to be and fair, the other to thing, be fair, Oracle yeah. inherited a busted Java implementation when they bought Sun. 
So they have been, right. uh, you know, they have been the 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 janitors of the Java mess uh, for the last couple of years. Having said that, things have not gotten better since Oracle took over. Uh, so no. for them well, to say they, that we can produce better code because we pay people, that that argument isn't holding water, at least in the face of Java. Yeah, well, it has gotten more closed and. Um, you know more the community's more ticked off at them so in that respect it has gotten better uh sorry and one other thing just to show that oracle isn't all bad they have released they call it their unbreakable enterprise kernel for linux servers um what they do is um they produce oracle linux which is based on red hat but rather than using you know red hat they stay kind of behind the current Linux kernel on their software because they want something rock solid and works. Well, Oracle says that's great, but there's a lot of new features out there. And so they have their unbreakable enterprise kernel that they kind of substitute for the main kernel in Red Hat Enterprise. And of course, you know, it's not like they're ripping off Red Hat. It's all kind of open source, but so they've, they, they've debuted version three of it, um, which is based on the, um, uh, 3.x Linux kernel, whereas the current Red Hat is still based on, I believe, 2.6. And so, you know, they are kind of giving back to the community that they kind of hate. So, you know, and this, and last year it was Microsoft. You know, last year Microsoft was one of the largest contributors to the Linux kernel. And this past, um, and now this year they're kind of falling off the thing. So now Oracle is like, Hey, you shouldn't use open source, but since we have uh, an interest in Linux, here's our kernel for our version of Linux, and we're doing that. And so, you know, they're giving back to to the community in that way by providing a user base, tracking bugs, and submitting fixes for those upstream as well. So that's kind of just some Oracle news. They don't like open source, but they do use it, and they're not all evil. They're just kind of mostly evil. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Seth, I got to give you just moving on from Oracle. This uh, Seth does the head. If you look at the the show notes, uh, Seth does the 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 little headline writing bit for for those things. I, I change very few of them. This one made me laugh out loud when I read it. First smartwatch hits market. Market hits back. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've seen the commercials for the Galaxy or the Samsung watch. The commercials are really cool, and they probably, looking at the commercials, I can see a use for having the, uh, for having a watch that syncs to your phone and everything else. The only problem is there's so few of the market that the phones, that the watches can actually sync to, uh, and you have to do a lot of workarounds to get them to work. Uh, and the thing is, Best Buy has reported that people who have bought these watches, the return rate is over 30%. Um, so wow. Samsung was first. Yay. We're the first out. You know, we beat Apple, um, you know, because Apple may or may not come out with one that people will love because it's Apple and world peace will be one day closer. But um, Samsung actually beat them and the watch is kind of cool but it's just not ready and it doesn't sync with their phones yet. And you have to do some workarounds that take out, like for example, the Android pop three mail client. If you use Android, you know that, you know, that's not really good. And so you get an app that does it better. Well, to sync it up with your watch, 
you have to use, you have to turn off the cool app that you had set up and go back to the Android one. And they're like, what? Oh man. And then it doesn't work with this smartphone, but it's Samsung. You have to go this one. And so people are realizing that it takes a lot of work to make it like it is in the commercial. You have to set up a lot of these workarounds that may or may not, you may or may not like the software required for that. So Samsung, yes, people are buying watches. And yes, a lot of people are returning the watches. Basically, for every three that are bought, one gets returned. That's high. Very high. I don't even think the Linux netbook return rate was that high. I think they were like 20%. (laughs) So I I just wanted to read this little uh, blurb here from uh, the Ars Technica. Ars Technica article. I think it sums it up really well. The Galaxy Gear requires a smartphone, but it's incompatible with most smartphones. It's supposed to rely on notification information from apps, but it doesn't support the vast majority of apps, including apps made by Google, which are among the most popular on Android. That's a pretty big red flag right there. But I got to say, I have some personal experience with this. Uh, I was, uh, I don't want to go into the detail for, you know, to protect the, uh, the tool in question uh but i was at a i was at a public place today for uh or not today but this week for uh, a long while and i happened to see a guy there with one of these watches and uh watched him interact with it um and i gotta say he didn't look cool at all he looked like a total tool he just looked it's you know that stupor that people get when they're staring at a cell phone he had that same stupor but he was staring at his watch, and because the screen is tiny, he was just swiping like a madman just to be able to see anything or do anything. And it was just—he looked like like some sort of epileptic, autistic, <laughs> um, you know, drug-induced ferret. I, you know, it was just weird. And this this was guy obviously had money. He was dressed nicely. He was in a professional environment. These things are not inexpensive, and the phone to which it attaches is not inexpensive. He obviously put some money in on this thing, and he just looked absolutely miserable with it. Um, it, it just it made me... I had such a distaste for these devices after watching that guy interact with it for about 25 or 30 minutes that I thought, I don't know that I would ever want to buy one of these. It just looked like he was he was in pain. It looked like it was causing him physical agony to try to use this thing. Well, he was holding his wow. wrist up and swiping, and, and I could that could be physical pain after you hold it up for so long, you know, on your shoulder, rotator cuff issues. You know, I could see some problems showing up. And it was clear from his facial expressions that it just wasn't doing what he wanted it to do. You know, and, and he was he was either getting the wrong thing or not. I don't know. You know, I didn't ask him. I I, I was thirty feet away. All I did was observe in silence. But uh, it was, it, it made me feel sorry for it. It's like I'm so sorry yeah. that you spent like seventeen hundred dollars between these two devices and are having to go through this. So anyway, yeah, I don't think I'd be story. sorry for him. I don't think I'd be <laughs> no, sorry for it, him. It was, but uh, you know, in that <laughs> same way that you feel sorry for the 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 crippled cat that you see hobbling down the street, you know, it's just, it, the, my, the human empathy went out for him. You poor suffering creature. I feel, I feel your pain. I feel sorry for you. I, I you know, I'll put a bullet in your head to ease your misery. If you want, no, that see, I just oh, said okay. that I would commit murder on a podcast. I totally didn't mean that. It was supposed to be a joke. It really didn't work very well though. Well, I mean, you know, you you called him a crippled cat and, you know, a mentally handicapped autistic person (laughs) before you offered to murder him. 
So, wow. That's Mark at LMLB.com. My sensitivity is at an all-time low today, I think. But anyway, (laughs) it just made me think about that because it was was a very uh, emotional, visceral reaction to it. It was like, um, you know, have you ever watched a, a documentary about meth addicts and you see them and they're just so screwed up? And you feel sorry for him, and you're mad at him all at the same time. This yeah. this had that response for me. I was like, I feel okay. sorry for you, and at the same time, I'm so mad at you. This is your fault that you're suffering by using this expensive device. Anyway, I, I, I meant to just mention that, and then it turned into an entire soliloquy, so I apologize for that. <laughs> yeah, you always got to wait for the first service pack before you buy a smartwatch. Just remember that, people. Wait for SP1. Before you go out and get your uh, your Samsung wrist device all in one personal Dick Tracy communicator, <laughs> yeah, see that that I want. It just it just is not there yet. You know, I want the I want the the implant in my ear that hears what I hear, sees what I see, and knows what I want before I want it. That that's yeah. What I want. You know, I gotta I gotta admit though, the commercials they done. Kind of make me want one, except for the whole it's morphin' time thing. But, you know, that I noticed the... I was like, really? But, you know, Babylon 5, I didn't realize that... Uh, it made me... I was like, wow, they did have a smartwatch in Babylon 5. You know, and the Thunderbirds, uh, a lot... Like I say, everything, but the, you watch... I think is I think the character's name was Jason, but the first Red Ranger because yes, I watched it. Oh my gosh, you know that it was it was cheesy and it was so cheesy it was good in a cheesy Sharknado kind of way. It was in no way good, but in a Sharknado way, the first Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was good. Uh, But you know they they grab the thing and they hold it up and go it's Morphin time. And I don't remember if they did Shape of like the Wonder Twins or whatever, (laughs) but you know they. Other than that, I kind of wanted one after watching, after seeing the commercials. Very good marketing. Um, unfortunately, they did not put as much time into product development as they did marketing. Um, but. And just in case you were worried about the NSA cracking your uh, security, don't worry about it. Belkin's been doing it for years in their. Uh, there was a there was a new thing. I think it was I think it was Belkin. It might have been Cisco, but the, somebody found a hardware back door into all of their home D-Link. routers. D Link, yeah, that yeah, was it was D Link. Yeah, um, and then, then this new one. If you have a Belkin baby monitor, I'm not sure why you would have a Belkin baby monitor, but if you do, uh, it's now a first class spying device. Yeah, nice. um, if, if you have a Belkin baby monitor hooked up on in your house, then you know one of the neat things about it is once it makes a connection to your iPhone, then you can listen to that baby monitor from anywhere in the world. It doesn't have to be on the same network. You can actually reach it over the Internet, and it does some networking magic to make that happen behind the scenes. But unfortunately, it can anything that gets on your network. So if you have your default a, your blank username and admin as the password on your Belkin monitor and, you know, you set up crappy, no encryption kind of thing. Well, then somebody can drive by and get your hack your network, get your Belkin monitor sync up with its phone and then they can listen in to anything the baby monitor can hear. Or if you have a compromised computer, it's not hard 
to pass the credentials along for this. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be the sky is falling, you know, tinfoil hat guy kind of thing here, but it's one of those things. You have security in one hand and you have usability in the other. Belkin decided to cut off the whole security arm so they could put everything into ease of use and ease of setup but in doing so they've just opened up a monster vulnerability in their network and if you don't care about privacy well then hey you know go get a bunch of belkin monitors and put them in every room you have so that you can listen in from across the world and know if someone's breaking into your house but you know hey honey what's the password to our banking site oh you know (laughs) if if your thing is if it's compromised you say all kinds of stuff that can get you in tons of trouble. Um, hey, I'm going to set up the new password for this phone, um, for our computer. What should it be? Hey, you know, try sweetheart 1987 because that's the year we met. Oh, I love you, sweetheart. And, uh, you know, and so now because your network was already compromised, they know your password. And again, I'm not saying that does happen, but it's a huge security vulnerability. And the thing is, the only way that you can go about this is you have to look at the Belkin device and see what has been associated to it. It's not like the security is off by default. It's the security is off period. And there's no way to turn it on. You have to look at the device and see what it's associated with. If you recognize it, great. If not, then it's been hacked somehow. And, uh, you know, it's, I personally, after reading this story, I would not have this Belkin monitor in my house. Um. Hmm. All right. Uh, and since we mentioned the uh, the D Link backdoor, let's jump straight to that one. Uh, I didn't know you had it in the notes. This was just a story I heard recently. Was just uh, just blew me away. Somebody, yeah. Geeks do this sort of stuff. Geeks are like, I wonder what happens if I decompile the router firmware in my router. Okay. I don't know why you would do that, but uh, this guy decided to do that. And he found a hardware-encoded backdoor turned on in presumably every Belkin, Belkin router made recently. Yeah, D-Link. D- and actually, D-Link, yeah. yeah, and it, I just want to read the uh, last couple of paragraphs from this. A web search turned up the suspicious user agent stream in a post on a Russian forum three years ago, Hefner wrote, which means somebody has known about it for a while, and then D-Link could not be reached for comment. Yes. So here's basically what happens. Is you set the uh, uh, user agent. Every browser has a user agent, and, and uh, geeks know this trick, so if a badly uh, coded website that uh, thinks it only needs IE, but everything works fine with Firefox. You can go there and you can set your user agent to Firefox. Or if you're on a mobile device on your tablet, but you want to want the site to think you're not using a mobile uh, browser, you can change the user agent. Uh, so this is not a new thing. Well, if you change your user agent to a specific string of unlikely to co- to jump up accidentally, um, uh, uh, string of text. You can get in immediately to any D-Link router. You don't have to log in. You don't have to, just browsing the page with this user agent set in your browser. Bang, you're in. If you That's are nuts. out there and you don't have um, uh, administration by the outside IP address turned off, go do it right now. Stop the podcast and go do it. That would fix this. Nobody should ever administer their own firewall from outside their house. Just don't do it. No matter how yeah. handy you think it is, don't 
do it. Go turn this off. Yeah, that that's like storing the key to your house under in your mailbox. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's secure. Especially when everybody knows. Yeah. But it's easy and it's convenient, Mark. And I might need to get in there because I forgot to TiVo something across the web. I don't know why I would need in it, but I might need it, Mark. Well, if you need that, then you set up something like uh, logmein.com on one of your machines and you remote into the machine. That's fine. Yeah. Never administer your firewall. And In fact, um, the, uh, the IP cop version of, of that I use on my Boris box, it will detect that. If you try to access um, your external IP address from inside your house, it says, nope, I'm shutting you down. You get no more access. So, like, if wow. your if your access is one ninety two dot whatever dot whatever, but your public is sixty six dot seventy six, if you try to go there, it drops that connection. Like, like it's done. You you can't back up from it. It's over. Um, which I think is awesome. <laughs> it's a good thing. Um, yeah. Right. But it's also you know, uh, it's rare. I don't know that many people would ever uh, want to do that. So, but that doesn't help it. If you've got, you know, if you're not using your Boris box and you're just using your D-Link router that you just plugged into the wall without doing any configuration on, um, just, just don't, just don't do it. Hey, I have. I wonder a who Joel is, it, though. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is kind of pretty much unrelated to this. Have y'all noticed Firefox crashing a lot? No. Mine is like, it, no. mine's crashing all the time on different machines. It's just like, you know, I mean, we're in, we're in, um, you know, we use a Google Hangout, so I'm in Chrome for that, but I, I use all my notes and stuff in Firefox and it just crashed. And on my other computer today, um, that I was using to show prep, it crashed several times. Um, hmm. so anyway, I, I just wondered if, if y'all noticed that, hey guys listening to the show, are y'all noticing Firefox or is it just me? Um, you know, I mean, it could just be me and it follows me around from machine to machine because there's some plugins I always right. use. I bet that's, um, but yeah, yeah I, you know, say, I mean, check I your use, plugins. yeah, I mean, and they're the most current ones. I've even uninstalled them and reinstalled them recently on the other machine and that, that hasn't helped. So, um, but anyway, I was just curious, you know, send us some feedback. Um, I'm just curious. Anyway, back to the show that was free. And I, I, I bet this backdoor thing, which is, uh, edit by Joel backdoor is the user agent string backwards with some numbers in it. Um, if you, if you trace back the history of this, they were all working on a problem together. Uh, and logging in was, was slowing them down or was maybe part of the problem. They needed to be able to get in without logging in. So somebody just wrote this hack really quickly so they could fix it. And then they never went back. I, I bet that's what it is. I've done that. Haven't you all? We've talked about it on the show, but I'm just going to set permission yep. 777 on this directory just for now oh. while I solve the problem. And then I never go back right. to it. Yeah, and that's a I great troubleshooting thing. I get the heebie yeah, is it, is it something I have done? Well, let's test that. Let's let everybody in, um, you know, and then you rule it out. Then you make the change, but then you rule it out. Then somebody comes and says, this problem is more important. Stop what you're working on and you never get back to it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those. It, it happens, unfortunately. So I don't think this was malicious. I think this was stupid. 
Uh, and it ended up making it into the silicon of millions, presumably, of, of devices out there. Oh, terrible, terrible idea. Uh, you know what else is a yep. terrible idea? Um, having the uh, government rule on your um, copyright infringement case when the government rules that you're wrong. Um, Ooh. Samsung had, they tried to do something clever, which turned out not being so much in such a clever thing. Are you talking about the executive branch one? Sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, well, basically, what happened was Samsung won a court battle and got a version, older versions of uh, Apple's iPhone and iPad banned for import to the U.S. And the International Trade Commission, you know, said, hey, we're banning them because that is right. Apple did violate the patent. Well, in a very rare move, um, government said, no, we're not going to uphold that. And this is just a quote from the article. Normally, the executive branch of government doesn't veto decisions by the U.S. International Trade Commission. However, in a rare move, the government had vetoed the ITC's ban of some older iPhone 4s, iPhone 3GSs, iPad 3Gs, iPad 2 3G devices following Apple's loss to Samsung in another patent infringement suit. So this is just part of the war that samsung and apple are raging across the world and you know apple's won a few they've probably lost more than they've won but here's a case where apple lost but the government said um i don't care we're not going to uh enforce this judgment basically Um, so this the reason you were so confused was this is not the story i thought it was i was giving you a lead into a different story uh that i read earlier in the week which is fascinating um Samsung, uh, if we presume it was Samsung, an, an anonymous party uh, had the uh, U.S. patent office, not necessarily them, but the people uh, in charge of it, look at some Sam, uh, some Apple patents and said, we don't think these are real patents. We want you to look at these and just strike them down and say, these aren't real patents. And uh, like 18 months later, the government back came back and said, oh, yeah, they're good patents. We're going to uphold them. So now you're sunk. So now you, it's much harder to go to court and say these aren't valid patents because the people you just asked to validate them said yes they are, and the patent was yeah, no kidding. There were twenty uh, different points in the patents that had to do with touch, uh, and so the, some of the things that that uh, that are now considered valid patents that have been reviewed are like um, you put a finger on a screen and move it upwards and the screen scrolls. You put a finger oh, on geez. the screen and move it left and left and right, and the screen um, displays new information as a result. These are things that are now considered valid patents. Oops, that's horrible. Can we say abuse? Wow. <laughs> when when will the abuse start? Because it, it's coming. I, I can. I'm forecasting that one. So I don't. I didn't have that. I thought this was the link that you were going to talk about, Seth. Uh, I don't have that, but maybe I'll try to find it and put it in the notes. But it, it was just, it was a devastating blow for com- uncommon sense, as you call it, Seth. Um, it's, yeah, you know, I, I've, like I say, I've abandoned my uh, my hypothesis that uncommon sense will eventually break out. I've I've seen too much idiocracy by all sectors of government, um, all parties. Lest you think I'm 
blaming only Democrats or Republicans uh, or liberals or conservatives. There, there's plenty of stupidity to go around. They're all drowning in it. Um, anyway, so, so now for anybody to fight sense. these patents, they got to go to court and and show a, a preponderance of prior art, showing that somebody has done it before, or they have to uh, convince uh, the powers that be that this is this is considered obvious by an expert in the field. Uh, those are really the only two ways to shoot it down right now. And I'm not aware personally of any prior art before the iPhone of anybody having a swipe to scroll. Um, and so they may, they may win that. And it, the, the end yeah. result there, if they end up winning this is that everything, every touch device in the world now becomes Illegal, essentially. So they're not, Apple's not going to push them all off the market, but they will make a make them pay a license. So now every time you oh, buy yeah. an Android or a Windows tablet or anything like that, um, or even you know just a kiosk at at the grocery store, um, they're going to have to pay a license fee to Apple because you touch your finger on the screen and move it, and something happens. Wow, that's just nuts. I, I'm in shock. I'm in literal shock over mm. this one of that story. That's nuts. And I'm 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 going to be searching Seth while you're talking about this next story. See if I can put, come up a link because I don't want people to think I made this up. But this is a real thing. I read it in a couple of blogs, and I actually talked about it on the uh, Security Now podcast this week as well. Uh, so at least other people, if, if it's a hallucination on my part, it's a group hallucination. Uh, that this <laughs> um, but speaking of prior art, Apple didn't invent the the App Store. We all know that. In fact, I uh, have raged against the uh, assumption that Apple invented the App Store because I used to be a, bla- a Palm user, and Palm had uh, an App Store. Uh, well, it turns out Minitel maybe have might have had it long before anybody else. Yes, in 1984, the French government allowed developers to create services for the Minitel. The government took a 30% cut and pass the rest on to the developers. Does that model sound familiar? Uh, thus creating the world's first app store. From a user's perspective, using apps on the Minitel was frictionless. You were just billed for what you use through your phone bill. Um, for those of you, I had never heard of the Minitel, or if I had, it had been so long ago, I'd forgotten about it. But uh, in France, in the 80s, Minitels were like a video terminal that plugged into your phone network and you were able to go online. Think of much the same way um, in the 90s, there were some like, I think AOL had the sets and bulletin board services before they were on computers. Um, how big was the app store? In the 90s, it was pulling in over a billion United States dollars a year. Uh, and when you consider the size, and this was just in France, this wasn't from all over the world, this was just France. That's humongous. Um, and this will change shortly, but, and they decommissioned the last of them in 2012. So it's only been recently that they've just shut this off. So from 84 to 2012, the Minitels were all over France. Um, but they, um, the Minitel in its lifetime, paid out more to developers than Apple has to iOS developers. But again, they're getting close to the break-even point. It'll probably be, probably be soon. But companies would advertise their apps in the subway, uh, on highway billboards, and on televisions, and the apps were numbered. So if you look at 
pitchers of France from like the mid eighties through the mid two thousands or the mid aughts. If you want to sound really old fashioned, um, you might see some word and then like a four digit number three, one, six, five or seven, two, nine, eight. And you wonder what does that mean? Well, that was the program number of the Minitel app that did whatever the advertisement was for. So I came across this. I really hope you'll take a link. It, it's osnews.com references a story. And then in there, they reference an article from makegameswith.us. Go read that makegameswith.us just because it's neat. Um, I, it was brand new to me. It was like, I mean, come on guys, we're America. We built the internet. Um, but it turns <laughs> out we might have been beaten by the French. Uh, so there you go, France. I'll give you some love because you deserve it. Um, the Minitel was truly ahead of its time, or at least ahead of us here in America. Um, there you go. We were too busy watching. Let me see what was in the eighties. Cheers. And then later Seinfeld to be uh, worried about the Minitel. Alf. Yeah. Yeah. Alf. Alf. Yep. And w- wondering who shot JR and watching Magnum make the island of Hawaii <laughs> safe. Um, Oh, and I, I don't have a good transition to this one, but I'm just going to say this. I love Linus Torvalds. He, he is, he is a man after my own heart. He can be a jerk when the time calls for it. He's very smart. Um, and I'm said, I'm going to totally steal your thunder and read this quote because it's just awesome. Uh, in a recent, uh, Linux, uh, conference, uh, Linus said, quote, Linux is doing so wonderfully well in so many areas, and I'm still somewhat disappointed about the fact that Linux desktop is a morass of infighting and people who do bad things. I do hope that desktop people would try to work together and do more work on technology than trying to make a login screen look really nice. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah, but then, you know, what what would us Linux people have to talk about if we weren't talking about Mirror versus Wayland versus Xorg versus... <laughs> whatever else is out there. Uh, you know, that basically what he just said is can't we all just get along? Uh, it's, it's something we've talked about so much. It, it, fragmentation is is a fact of life. It's going to happen. But petty disagreements don't have to happen. And, you yeah. know, arguing over who has the best wallpaper in their distro is is a ridiculous reason to choose a distro. Right click and apply will let you put any wallpaper on any distro. Uh, but yeah. st- but still, that's people get nuts about that. So anyway, I I, I Linus, you n- hit the nail on the head there. That's exactly the right thing to say. Yep. Okay. No comment <laughs> on that one. How about an actual Linux show? A Linux story on our Linux show. The U.S. Navy's newest ship is all Penguin powered, baby. Yes, nice. the USS Zumwalt will be a floating data center. Um, and basically, the cool thing about this is they're making inside the ship, they're going to have these uh, data rooms that are kind of insulated for shock and damage prevention and damage control. But they're using just basic off-the-shelf level components. So I'm not saying they're going down to fries or ordering a bunch of stuff off Tiger Direct or elementop.com slash Amazon. Come on, Navy. That's how you nice. want to buy your stuff, you know. But um, they're using <laughs> yes, that yes, grade. Navy, please use, please spend all $3.5 billion at elementop.com slash Amazon. Please. 
Yeah, you that can would buy, be pretty uh, dang but they're cool. Using, they're using off-the-rack uh, level components. So they're using the exact same type of hardware that you could use to build your uh, ship or home server. <laughs> I doubt me if they're building ships, but if you wanted to build a home server and, you know, you were going to build it from the ground up and, you know, apply your own distro, but uh, that's what they're doing. They aren't custom uh, creating some special thing, you know, with high shock tolerances. They're trying to do that in the room that they're putting them in. So uh, perhaps it's appropriate that the first commanding officer of the Zoom Walt will be Captain James Kirk. And that is his actual name. So, awesome. you know, it's just <laughs> awesomeness. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of cool. It's a one, it's a super expensive ship. It's three and a half billion dollars designed for stealth survivability and firepower. And it's powered by off the shelf server hardware with various flavors of Linux and over six million lines of software code. So there you go, guys. If you want to learn to code, you can join the Navy and you don't just have to, uh, you don't just have to ride on a boat and swab the decks, but you can, you can program and code in the Navy as well. They obviously need it. Six million lines of code to run the ship. Thought it was cool. It says, uh, the article says mostly IBM blade servers running Red Hat Linux. Uh, and they put it in a server room that with uh, vibration control dampening so that while the ship is taking fire, the servers aren't moving. So instead of ruggedizing the computer equipment, they ruggedize the environment in which the equipment was put. That's a neat idea. Right. I, I remember... Um, it was a while now uh, ago, probably early 90s, when NASA uh, totally rearranged the mission control down in Houston at uh, uh, Kennedy Space Center in Houston. They went with off-the-shelf components then, and it was a big deal because they, they had been using really specialized stuff. And then they realized that we could we can go to Fry's and we can buy an off-the-shelf computer and we can get 10 of them and have be ready to swap out nine extras for the cost of this one specialized the one that we've been using. Uh, so that was a big deal in the NASA control room. Of course, they've been doing that for years now, and um, and now they they're taking that model to the ship. But it, you do have to obviously make some some concessions in the design of the ship. So if you're using weak, um, not uh, weak in the sense that it's not designed to stop a bullet, uh, hardware, you've got to put it in a strong environment. Right. Yeah. See, I'm old enough to remember back in the early days, uh, the late '80s, early '90s. Um, most computer, the, the largest purchaser of computers in the world was the military. Uh, and like you said, Seth, the, the U.S. invented the Internet, right? And uh, so I remember cases that were, um, you know, uh, half inch or at least quarter inch thick steel with rivets and, and seven or eight screws that holds the back case on. And uh, each floppy drive at the time had like seven screws in it because it was designed to be vibration resistant, shock resistant, and it was, it was military grade. Uh, and now, you know, obviously cases are made out of plastic and you can flip one button and the whole thing falls apart. <laughs> uh, that would never fly on a, on a military environment. So it's kind of, we've, we've gone full circle. Now we're going back to consumer grade, uh, where at the time military grade was all the consumers can, can get. And now the military is buying consumer grade. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You guys remember that working on those old cases like that? Or am I just the only ancient one there. No, I remember that. I still have a couple of them in, it, <laughs> currently running. So, yeah, they're they're always fun to work on. I mean, you could park a car on one of those cases and it would be just fine. It was, yep. it was super hard steel with reinforced edges 
Um, and not this sharp stuff that would slice your hands open. That 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 came along later, like in the the late '90s, early 2000s. Super thin sheet metal that if you weren't right, you'd cut your own jugular on uh, if you weren't <laughs> careful. Um, so it, it's been interesting. Is in working with computers as long as I have, I've seen that all go full circle. Now cases are mostly plastic with a little metal in them. Uh, but mm-hmm. back when I first got started, they were super heavy duty uh, for military use. And it's crazy how that's uh, how we're sw- you know rotate rotating back to the uh, you know consumer grade again. It'll be interesting to see what happens and say I don't know maybe fifteen you know, another five years from now are we going to go back to the super heavy duty stuff that we see case modders mod you know all over the place or are we going to stay with the super cheap and in plastic with a little bit of metal? And I bet they're putting in solid state drives so vibrations aren't an issue. Like they used yeah. to be with a spinning disc, you know. If you don't have a, a 1400 RPM disc spinning, uh, you can be a little more loosey goosey about the vibrations of it. So uh, it's probably you know the yin and yang that the consumer grade advancements have made the military uh, uh, advancements less necessary. Hmm. All right. So right. for our last story, one that we that we alluded to earlier, uh, and I think this is a great way to to end the story uh, to to end the show. Make sure everybody here is scared to death. Um, the a new uh, ransomware called CryptoLocker uh, is, is is out there, and it's it's brilliant and beautiful in its design, but also completely evil. Yes, um, beyond yes. evil. <laughs> so, yeah, you know we've talked uh, before. Go or go ahead, go ahead, Seth. Yeah, you first. No, I was gonna say, you know, we've talked before about the the ransomware that you know. Um, Basically, it was a great way for me to, my brother saved me from my last job by his computer getting infected. And all you had to do to get out of it was have another user account. And if you didn't have another one, just Trinity Rescue Disk to create another one and then go in and delete the file. But, you know, it brought up the full screen thing as soon as you logged in and said, you know, we're from, and it could have been Homeland Security or Interpol or FBI or whatever, but we found child porn on your computer, pay this fine with PayPal or green card or whatever. Uh, but it was actually very easy to get rid of. Well, now it's crypto locker and apparently it actually encrypts your drive. Um, but it's, you know, and again, it's one of those, well, I got this email that said, click here for updates. And, uh, so you actually have to install. It doesn't like install itself, but it actually seems to encrypt your drive and you have to pay the 300 us dollars uh and then they send you a code to unlock it and uh the story on ars technica where it happened the people and it says if you attempt to disable it you know this um will delete the keys from the server or whatever so i don't know if that's bluffing or not it hasn't happened to me uh, or anyone i know but the people there were unable to fi- to figure out a way around it and so you know the option was you either pay via bit Bitcoin or uh, some other way to do it, but uh, that's and you only had so long. There's like a countdown option that happens as well, and so it kind of encrypts your data, and so you it's not like you can turn it off and access it from another machine unless you can hack the crypto locker, uh, which seems to be pretty tough. Uh, but anyway, it's kind of like ransomware, but ransomware that actually works and not just right. the thing that was just a pain to get rid of, but this one actually seems to work. So back up your data. Remember, if you don't have your data in at least three, if 
at least three copies of your data in two separate locations, you really don't have your data because if it gets encrypted and then you call me, well, I'm like, what? Here's another computer for you to sign up on Bitcoin. I, I don't really know what to do. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a hacker like that. Um, so let me talk a little well, bit about the evil genius that is this program. Um, yeah. So he, here's what it does. It uh, generates a, uh, I think it was a 256-bit RSA uh, encryption yep. pattern, generates its key, uses that key to encrypt your data. Then sends that key to a to a server uh, with a, a rather random looking string of of domain names. So like zxqy nine nine six seven ly four six dot com would be the domain name. And so the 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 program has a list of those, and it knows roughly within what time frame that they're going to be available. So on this date to this date, this one will be available. So the 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 hackers are registering those do- these domains and bringing them live and then taking them back down uh, so it's hard to catch them. And even if you do, you don't want to catch them because here's what happens. They encrypt your hard drive uh, with that uh, key, then wipe out the key uh, or first send the, send the key to their server and then zero it out on your own hard drive. So they're the only place that the decryption key that could possibly break this 256-bit RSA encryption is on that server. That's it. Yep. So your data is, it's toast. I mean, you're going to spend trillions of years brute forcing that thing. You're never going to get that because it's a randomly generated and it's good, solid random number generation. They really, it was good technology. Uh, and so then it pops up a thing and says your personal files and your personal files being uh, MP3s, MP4s, uh, Word files, JPEGs, uh, spreadsheet files. It just There's a big long list of them and it just scrambles them and holds them hostage. Yep. It's an evil little bugger. Yeah. yeah. There's not much you can do once you've been infected other than paying the ransom. Um, because even if you do clear it off, you clear off your the crypto locker, you still can't get your data back. And if you do clear it off and you know, get the bug off and you say you end up wanting to pay the, bu- the, the ransom, you can't. Because even if you reinfect the computer with the crypto locker, it doesn't regenerate the same keys because it regen it gens new keys every time and so it can it can reach out to anything that your machine this is windows only by the way yep. you linux guys can remain smug in your superiority this time um any windows share that this can access so if you've got a backup a crash plan or a ba- or, or a dropbox or something like that it'll hose that too so you can't rely on your backups. Only, only your offline backups or backups that go through some other intermediary device, uh, like yep. uh, like Carbonite, Carbonite, for uh, or or like if you've got a an FTP server, right? So it's not going to be able to get to that if you're FTPing things up. Uh, but if it can reach out through a Windows share and reach those files, it'll scramble those. So let's say I'm sitting at my desk at work, and I download this thing. This thing starts scrambling not only my files, but all the files on all the servers I can reach. And all the files on all the coworkers' computers I can reach. So this could be devastating to, uh, you know, say a small lawyer's office that has Ooh. an open network where everybody shares everybody's stuff. So they've only got 10 computers. They don't really have a centralized file server. They don't need that. Just everybody's available through the C-share. Yeah, about that. The whole thing is gone now. <laughs> now, I haven't looked or, or done enough investigation to find out, does it assume 
your credentials to then try accessing servers or does it just look at you know drive mappings has anyone seen that well it's it's anything that you can get to so yeah the 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 logged in user uses uses the the uh authentication that you have as while you're logged on so it's not a privilege escalation or anything so, it, so it'll actually just scan the network and attach or, or and try to touch machines that you can then get to exactly if you so can yeah see this it. is this is bad make sure your stuff is locked up tight people because this will definitely hurt you um there has been um some inoculation programs built to try to head this thing off um our well, one of the guys I talk with a lot, Nick over at D7 um, at foolishcomputer.com, he's working on a inoculation to eliminate the places that this thing can run from. So that's going to be the you're just about the only way to get yourself to not be infected by this thing until the antivirus companies come up with a way to detect it before it can run. Um, so definitely keep an eye on your security companies. And some of the early white hat hackers that found this uh, uh, disabled DDoS or whatever the the servers that the keys were on. Well, that's the worst thing you could possibly do because now you have removed the only location in the world that has your decryption key. Yep. No, no, good good idea. Not so much. Um, so yeah, um, I don't know where this is going to end up going, but I know people are going to get bit by it. So make sure you guys have your offline backups. That's the only thing that's going to keep you safe. If you know somebody who has an open network shares, make sure that they have stuff backed up. I know personally with the machines that I get in, I'm going to have stuff backed up. All my personal data is going to be locked down. Um, I'm not going to have anything in an open share, and I'm going to start setting up um, DMZs at all of the places I can touch because this is bad. Um, be careful out there, everybody. This is this is what we're getting to. Um, I'm curious to find out what happens in the computer repair companies that see this come in because I don't know about you, Mark, but I know with my home business, this scares the crap out of me. I would hate to see this thing come into my local place and, you know, like my file server that I host all my um, client data on when I do backups, that's just an open share. Uh, I'm going to have to put that, I'm going to have to split my, my file server now and have one, and have two separate ones. Um, spooky stuff's out there, guys. Make sure you guys are, are keeping yourself safe. Yeah, and this comes in, uh, like Seth said, through a spear phishing attack or an email where uh, you get a they have to convince you to install the software. So it's yeah. not, it's not, you're not going to just browse a random site and, and get Yet. busted. But Yet. still, man, there are a lot of people who willy nilly click every link that comes through every email. They're not always yeah. disciplined as the command line godfather who won't do it even if it comes from me. <laughs> well, it's just for the simple fact that, you know, your personal machine could get infected and then send right. me a link. You know, it, it, that's all it takes. Or someone to copy your address book and spoof your email address. It doesn't take much for this stuff to happen. So be preventative. Um, it definitely, I wonder if the antivirus companies have ha- have signatures yet for this. 
or if it's too random, if it's generating too random to to signatures to have signatures. Yeah, it's I don't know. Uh, and we've completely lost Seth. He has gone from the Hangout from Skype. He he, the the Crypto Link Crypto Locker got him. He is gone. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to do his this week in history, October 29th, 1969, the first ever. Uh, computer-to-computer link uh, using packet switch network on the ARPANET is established. And I know a little bit about that. That consisted of four machines, uh, two actual machines and two machines called IMPs. And the IMPs were the translator. I forget what IMP stood for. But there were two machines and then two, essentially what we would call today, modems. Uh, that, But they were whole big machines. Uh, and so one machine talked to an IMP, an IMP talked to an IMP, and then the IMP talked to the other machine. Um, and that happened on October 29th, 1969. That's so cool. The birth of the network, basically. If you're into networking at all, if, if, if any of this stuff interests you, really do some research on the amazing things that they did back then. It all started with Sputnik. When the Russians put Sputnik in, in space, um, the Americans panicked. Uh, and that it was a good kind of panic. It was an innovation kind of panic. And they came up with this... I mean. Th- it's amazing that the internet works. It really is. So right now I'm speaking into a microphone. It's being digitized. It's being sent out, uh, given an address to send with no route. Just say, get to this address whenever you can get there. Yeah. Who does that, right? Would you give somebody a, a, a directions to your house for a party and just say, here's the address, get here when you get here? Um, and so the packets figure out themselves how to get there. And when they get there, the computer has to figure out what order they're supposed to be in. And it's pretty amazing that it works at all, frankly. Um, and well, it's it was a lot just, of fuzzy logic. Right. It was really you know? and fuzzy logic in 1969. So yeah. it was really smart guys doing really smart stuff. Go check it out. Invest some time in studying the history. I don't have any uh, particular books off the top of my head to recommend or anything, but uh, you'll find pretty quickly uh, the information is available out there on the internet because it's all open, open information. Uh, and just when you realize... What happens uh, when you hit send on an email? It's pretty mind-boggling. It is. It, it's definitely one of those things that, you know, like today I had a bunch of people ask me how to send a bunch of pictures out through the Internet. That wouldn't have been possible without these guys back then figuring out that, hey, if we do this, this will happen and this will be a good thing. Right. But that's also why we have so many security problems because back then when they set the the foundation up, there was no th- nothing to worry about for security, right? So they weren't thinking about security, they were just thinking, "Can we do it?" Yeah, um, and that, and then just the like, trouble. well, just like the dealing problem we talked about earlier, they were trying to get something fixed. To can we do this? And never went back to fix it. So how many of those things are coming up and biting us now? All right, so there's there's some cheery news for you. Your computer and all your data could be hacked. All your base are belong to us if you're not careful. Um, so, uh, Chris, how do you uh, find a trail of some terrible thing that might have happened by the command line? I'm trying to lead you in there, not doing a very good job. <laughs> that yeah, that was pretty rough. Um, this is an oldie but a goodie. Um, I brought it back up. I brought this up originally back in episode twenty three, if I remember my numbers right. Uh, it's called tail. So if you're looking through your message log or your your 
any log file, this is the tool for you. This will tell you the last couple of lines that are in that file itself. Uh, if you're looking, if you know you edited a config file and you know it's at the end, tail will tell you what you did or what's there. And there's even a switch to make it so it auto reloads every time there's a new entry. So this is a good thing when you're troubleshooting a problem to look at the log files and keep them active. This will be your, your bread and butter for trying to figure things out. Tail and you're, you'll see it. All right. And I don't and know what Seth's link is this week. This thing, I, 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 I do. I, I okay. can speak to this one because uh, I don't know that I introduced Seth to this, but we both found it uh, probably at around the same time. Rhett and Link, R-H-E-T-T and Link, uh, YouTube.com, uh, Rhett and Link. Uh, there are a couple of guys, I think from from North Carolina, if I remember correctly, who were just goofy kids who always got into trouble, and they figured out how to do that professionally. <laughs> they're talented musicians, uh, and they're also just insane. So they 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 have a they have like a radio show that they do. But uh, Seth mentioned last week the rub some bacon bacon on it video uh, that that you can find. Uh, Rhett and Link just there's just brilliance there. Uh, it's it's goofy uh, sketch comedy. It's uh, clever uh, lyrics. Uh, they've done a couple of uh, uh, guest spots on epic rap battles of vis- of history, if you're familiar with that uh, internet meme. Uh, so just check them out. Rhett and Link uh, on YouTube, but I also think they have rhettandlink.com. Let me check that out. Mm-hmm. It may just jump right to the YouTube site. I'm not sure. Uh, no, so yeah, it they it, it is that it, it jumps to their uh they have a website, but it's pretty much just a YouTube playlist. So anyway, check them out. Rhett and Link, funny stuff all around. And um, huh? I guess we're just not going to get I, Seth back. So it's a good thing I knew that one. <laughs> yeah, because I would have been lost. That one was beyond me. Um, and so now is the time to say. Let us know what you think about this and all the other shows. You can do that over at elementob.com. Don't forget to check out the forums, the bad movie forums. Uh, was there a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie? Uh, if so, maybe it belongs in the bad movie forum. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, it does. Uh, and uh, uh, there also you can see, uh, well, there's just all sorts of stuff there. You can email us also at uh, uh, edl at elementop.com, uh, or you can uh, uh, leave us a voicemail using the voicemail widget at the top of the page, or just pick up your phone and dial 559-IAM-OP, uh, and that will uh, take you to my Google Voice uh, number, and you can leave us a, a voicemail, and we will uh, play it on the air. We love to hear from you. Also, show topics, keep them coming. Um, Questions, comments, good or bad, uh, we are very um, accommodating of people who just want to have me read their insults on the show. I've, I've been very, <laughs> very open about doing that. If you send me a bad email, I'll probably put that in the show as well. So uh, we just, like I've said many times before, this is listener-oriented uh, programming. We, we, we work for you. And we don't ever forget that. Uh, also, you could do us a great favor by telling everyone you know about the show. Uh, preferably if you like it. If you don't like it, keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody. But if you do like it, tell everybody you know. (laughs) 
And if you happen to be near a Windows machine, uh, hop on over to iTunes, uh, find us there, and give us a rating and a review. It would be greatly appreciated because that's how you get featured in iTunes. It's all about how many ratings and reviews you get, mostly reviews. They count reviews higher than ratings, uh, but also ratings are there. So uh, it would not be hard for us to to dominate the uh, um, uh, Linux category on iTunes. If, if a, a third of our audience all went and gave us a rating and a review, we'd be at the very top of the list. It wouldn't cool. take much, but it's just, you know, there's not a lot of uh, Linux guys who want to do that. So I'm asking you, no, I'm commanding you, pseudo, get to a Windows machine, run iTunes, and leave us a rating and review, and then go shower afterwards, because I know it'll make you feel dirty. Oh, yeah. Or VM it, and then do it, and then you can just delete the VM when you're all done. Yeah, See? That works, too. Problem solved. <laughs> uh, okay, and, and without further ado, on behalf of Seth, who uh, I hope is still alive, maybe the zombies got to him first, I don't know. Oh, no. Hopefully we'll find out next week. Um, I will simply say that ends this episode.